Well, thank you for your prayers. Um, as you guys know, uh, I was laid pretty low over the last week. Um, it is good to be back. I have missed you guys. Uh, it was very, very difficult to be away for not just one teaching slot, but two. So that was like uh, that was that was very challenging. But uh, I'm very, very, very thankful uh, for for your prayers. Um, it was kind of a phased approach in our sickness. Those of you who are single, you have this to look forward to when you have, when you have a family. One of you goes down. Uh, this time it was me. Went down hard on a, on Wednesday. Uh, then subsequently, my kids went down, and now finally Mary went down. So yeah, right right about the time I got better, she she bit the dust and um, is at home tonight uh, recovering. So she would still appreciate your prayers. She is, I've learned a couple things. She's way tougher than I am. Um, you know, I get sick and I'm like, the world is over. It is. It has ended. Uh, my life is over. I'm going to curl up and die. Uh, she gets sick and she's like, where's the Motrin? I got kids to care for, you know. And she's still, you know, motoring through. So I had to twist her arm. I took off. I took off on Wednesday. Uh, what day was it? I don't even know what day it is. Yes. Took off on Wednesday this week, not because I was sick, but to help her um, with the kids. So uh, pray for her. Thank you, Rich, so much for teaching. Um, let me just take a minute and, and, and brag on this guy and give God thanks for Rich Brown. I went down Wednesday, and he taught Thursday. Now, Rich does not have the luxury of just opting out of work all day on Thursday to prepare a lesson. Uh, Rich was in full throttle uh, work mode, and then he pivoted you know, Wednesday night and then Thursday night to, to pull together a lesson, um, and you served this group tremendously. So thank you for that. Thank you for serving me and my family and stepping in that short notice, uh, which, is, which is a challenge to do. And not only did he do it on Thursday, but then, you know, I was... I was all, you know, confident that Friday I was coming out of this thing and we were doing well and I was gearing up for Sunday and ready to go and then Friday night I got hammered again. Um, it all came back and uh, so we were communicating <laughs> and Saturday morning I was gun shy. You know, I'd been humbled and I was like, I don't know if it's going to come back Saturday night and I didn't want to put him in alerts again uh, with, you know, oh, it's back Saturday night so I can't, I can't teach Sunday. So he, he, he went ahead and agreed to go ahead and teach Sunday and I took another day and uh, fully recovered. So, Rich Brown, thank you so much for stepping in over this, these last two weeks and, and teaching. Uh, incredibly fruitful. Um, I call Rich the real college pastor because he does it all, right? He can teach, he shepherds, he counsels, he counsels me, shepherds me, tells me to stay home when I need to stay home. So, um, it's a sweet partnership to serve alongside of him um, in the ministry. Well, um, when you go down, when you get sick, you know, it's, it's always, the joke in my family is, I don't get sick much, but when I do, it's bad. Uh, and so it, it takes a while, you know, and so what that usually means is I've got a couple days laying flat on my back uh, with high fevers and thinking about life. Um, I don't, I mean, yeah, I might watch something on the screen, or I might read here and there, but I get headaches, and it's just, so I end up just kind of laying there thinking. And uh, the Lord just, he taught, he always teaches me a lot, reminds me of things that I know um, when I get sick, but just, man, our bodies are frail, aren't they? Uh, we can go down quickly, and unless he helps us, we stay down. And uh, so that, that, was a, that was a swift reminder for me. And, but he taught me something in particular this, this time, or reminded me of something in particular, I should say. And he reminded me that, that he works in very counterintuitive ways. What I mean by that is, you know, probably at this phase in our ministry life here in Boundless and at the church, uh, I'm going to say this, but I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm going to say. This is probably the busiest season of my ministry career. Busy in a good way. There are so many opportunities. Uh, teaching multiple times a week. Counseling folks 
you know, week in and week out, discipling people, uh, mentoring the boundless leaders, writing curriculum and different things. I mean, it's just, it just never ends. And it's good. I'm not saying that as a complaint. This is a, this is a beautiful privilege. Uh, so many opportunities. Balance, you guys are growing. You're influencing people. You have questions. You want to help people care for other people. And then you ask me those questions. How do we help them help, you know, help others? And so it is just, it is full throttle. And we love it. My wife would say the same thing. You know, she's, it's full throttle for her. And she's got kids. So, you know, we're running. We're flying around. And then all of a sudden, boom! You know, we get hit with this virus. And, you know, it completely knocks us out. We cancel, we had so many things that we canceled, just had to completely nix. Uh, so many things that in our, in our view would have, would have borne a lot of fruit had we, had, had we been able to um, fulfill those things. And so one of the things that, that happens in that moment when everything is canceled is you realize, I realize, subtly in the, in the, in the ebb and flow of ministry, in the pace of ministry, you can begin to think, wow, I'm the Lord's using me to produce fruit. And then your heart kind of gets proud in that, and, and you think, wow, this is kind of due to me at some level, right? And then, and then he literally puts me on my back for two days and helps me see that, no, he's the one that produces fruit. It's his work. He began the good work, and he is going to see it to completion. And he does not need me to accomplish that good work. And so whether I'm on my back shivering with a fever, or I am fully maximizing my gifts uh, in the life of a ministry. Uh, the Lord does not need me, and yet he is gracious to, to use us. And so that, that was kind of brought powerfully home to me, kind of when our, my ministry came to a screech, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But today, uh, there was another sort of screeching halt that happened. And it happened around 6 p.m. today, and it had to do with Microsoft and my computer. And what ended up happening is my computer completely shut down, and for the first time in my life, I lost my entire sermon manuscript not to be recovered. So if you notice me pacing back and forth, that's because I don't have any notes tonight in our message on Philippians. So at 6 p.m., I was... In between two emotions, just kind of like excitement of what's the Lord going to do tonight, you know, <laughs> and crying. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> because, as you know, I slave over my manuscripts. Uh, I write them out, I put a lot of work into them, and I'll, like a, an idiot, I did not save my manuscript. Uh, today, I was just jumped in, I started writing, I had the document pulled up, and uh, maybe some of you can, can resonate with uh, computer crash, losing all your work. Um, thankfully, it wasn't a dissertation, it was just a sermon. So, um, but anyway, the, the Lord kind of is testing me in, in multiple domains here uh, in, in my life. So things, the theme of this week is that the, things have come to a screeching halt, and <clears throat> As I got to thinking about that and how that feels and what the Lord's teaching me in all of those things, I began to think, wow, this, this really must have been how Paul felt as he was um, writing this letter to the Philippians. Because as you remember, Paul was coming into this, he came into this letter uh, in prison. He was incarcerated, right? He was incarcerated in Rome. And this was the probably the most effective church planter known to man in church history. I mean, he was moving around. You talk about fruitfulness. He was going, planting churches, preaching the gospel, suffering for Christ, ministering to people, and then all of a sudden, boom, he's imprisoned. Uh, everything stops for Paul. He gets thrown in prison in Caesarea, and he's kind of forgotten about there for a long time, and then eventually appeals to, to Caesar and get, goes to Rome, and now he's incarcerated in this Roman dungeon, essentially, that is out of, out of sight. Uh, nobody really knows where it's at. He's chained to a Roman guard 24-7. Uh, there's very little light in this place. Dysentery abounds. Uh, people died of starvation, of, of disease, of all kinds of things. It's a miserable 
torturous place. And that's where Paul's at. Everything came to a screeching halt, and it makes a, a, a five-day virus not look so bad um, when you compare it against, against that. And so he's facing all of these, these difficulties with his ministry stalled out, facing so much hardship, and he's sitting there in this prison, and no doubt coursing through his mind is what he, he describes as the, the burden of all of the churches. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians, I believe it is, of having this sort of daily burden, this daily anxiety of the care of all the churches that he'd planted. So Paul had a huge heart, uh, always praying, always thinking about these, these folks that he loved in these places in the Roman Empire, these churches. And these people always were kind of coursing through his, his heart. And so with all that going on, um, Paul gets news from a man named Epaphras or Epaphroditus in uh, Philippians. We learn about that. that he, he comes from the church in Philippi carrying news to Paul. And he comes bearing a gift. So they had heard that he was in prison. And he comes and he gives them this gift. And then he comes and kind of unloads most likely on Paul and the church there about the church and what, what's going on there. So Paul's no doubt feeling this burden. He's feeling the, the, the difficulties of, of everything going on in Philippi. You know, he's telling them about, hey, persecution's ratcheting up. Uh, people, you know, that once were bold in their faith are now they're, they're getting hit economically because they're losing their jobs. They're starting to shirk away from, from sharing the gospel. They're getting afraid. Um, not only that, but, hey, you remember Yodi and Syntyche? Yeah, I remember them. They're, they're fighting. You know, there's, there's been an offense they can't get along, these charter members of the church. And they're, they're not reconciling. And factions are forming. Uh, th- slander's happening. And it's, it's really detracting from the mission in Philippi. And so Epaphroditus was this church leader. He's burdened. And so he's, he's, talk, he's saying all these things to Paul. And no doubt, Paul's sitting there, imprisoned. Timothy's by his side. He can't do anything about it himself other than you know, write this letter. And so you begin to think, I begin to kind of get in Paul's mind and think, oh, wow, he's facing this hardship. Got to be tempting to be discouraged. He hears this news from Philippi. That's got to be discouraging. (laughs) So what's he going to do? How's he going to respond? What's his first shepherding move? What's he going to pin first in this letter? How's he going to approach this congregation that's facing problems, serious problems. And one of the things that I think may surprise you is how he, how he opens this letter. You can tell from the title of our message tonight. He opens this letter with some profound, what I'm calling God-centered affirmation of this church. He doesn't start addressing their issues. He doesn't start by you know, expressing, you know, woe is me, let me tell you about my circumstances. But he starts with his eyes fixed on God, thanking God for these Philippian believers. He's very specific about what he thanks them for, what he's thanking God for about them. And then he pivots to some incredible, incredible affirmation of, of God's of confidence in God's working in them. How he started it, he's going to finish the work that's happening in Philippi. And then he, he concludes this section of, of text, this opening paragraph, with this beautiful statement of his affection for them and how he's, he's actually a conduit for the affection of Jesus Christ for this church. So, you know, if I'm writing this, I may have been tempted to jump in or I'm in a counseling moment or you're counseling one of your friends, you may be tempted to jump right in and start trying to fix their issues. But Paul didn't do that. He will try to fix their issues. He will go for that. But the first thing Paul does is Paul focuses them on God. He affirms them and God's fruit and the grace in their lives. And we desperately need this today. We need this encouragement ourselves. We get, we get bogged down in our circumstances. You know, you're facing exams. You're facing breakups. You're facing you know, all these kinds of things. Uh, family scenarios you don't know how to deal with, 
friends that are leaving the faith, other friends that are facing stuff that you don't know how to handle. And it is just so easy to be discouraged by the circumstances. And to turn inward, to get away from God's purposes, His mission, and to kind of take that self-pitying mentality, just kind of woe is me. It would have been easy for Paul to do, and it's definitely easy for us to do. So we need this encouragement tonight, and we also need, once our eyes are fixed on Christ, we need to learn how to be affirmers of other people. Affirmation is not always flattery, okay? Even though I used to think that. Um, Affirmation is not always flattery. It's encouragement. It's God-centered, meaning we're pointing people to God, and we're affirming God's grace at work in their lives. And Paul's going to model for us how we can affirm and encourage others tonight. So I'm calling our lesson the the power of affirmation and the power of God-centered affirmation, meaning it's focused on God. It's not man-centered. It's not flattery. It's not trying to puff up someone's ego um, in themselves, but it's pointing them to what God has done in and through them. So that's that's what I'm calling God-centered affirmation. And so tonight, if you're not already there, you can turn over to Philippians 1. We're going to see this in our text. <clears throat> now, this might be the shortest sermon known to man, because um, I don't have any notes. So, Or it might be the longest sermon known to man. <laughs> it's uh, 50-50. But we'll aim, for the, uh, we'll aim for the sweet spot. All right, we're going to see... Three giant affirmations in this text. Three huge, I'm calling them affirmations because Paul's actually doing different things in all three of these, but the point behind them all, I think, is he wants to affirm this church. He wants to set them on the right trajectory, kind of get their eyes back up off their circumstances, off themselves, and onto God. And he does this by, by, by these affirmations. Here's the first one. Paul affirms his gratitude for their partnership in the gospel. That's how he starts out here. He affirms his gratitude. He affirms how thankful he is to God for them, and in particular, their partnership with him in the gospel. So I'll give you a chance to write that, and then we'll jump in here and read this passage. We'll go ahead and read the whole thing, and then I'll come back and comment. He says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So there's our first affirmation, and here's our next one. And I am sure of this, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's the third. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of my grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. Listen to that language. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Three powerful, powerful affirmations here in this text of the Philippians. And the first is that Paul is grateful for them. He's grateful to God for their partnership in the gospel. You see this in verses 3 to 5. So as we, as we jump in here, <clears throat> Paul's wanting to highlight for them why, that, he's, that he's thankful for them. You know, this church is struggling. It is in difficulty. Uh, they're fighting with each other. And he's saying, stop. I am thankful to God for you. And here's why. Because since the very first day till now, you've been a partner with me in the gospel. So I want to notice a few things just about this affirmation that I think will be helpful for us. First, I want you to notice who this gratitude is directed toward. Okay? Who's it directed toward? 
Trick question. God, yes. It's directed to God. Um, not necessarily the church in Philippi. Okay? The gratitude is aimed at God. Now that's an interesting observation because he's thankful for the Philippians. He's thankful for their partnership in the gospel. But he thanks God for their partnership. Not the Philippians. Now why is that? Well, Because we know, Paul knows, and Paul's going to tell us that every good thing comes from God. Every good thing in our lives, every fruit in our lives, every encouragement from a friend, every sermon that comes to you and is helpful, everything good comes from God. Every fruit. And so, as a result, Paul doesn't thank the Philippians directly. He thanks God for the Philippians. That's because every fruit, everything comes from God. Now this should be a tremendous encouragement to us. So we're thinking about renewing our minds, taking steps of faith and obedience. Do you realize that every single time you've obeyed the Lord, that that's been Him working in you? He says that later in the, in the book, in this letter here. He tells us in, over in chapter 2, tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, verse 12. And then he tells us why. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Meaning God's producing the want to, the will, and the work. And He's producing the outflow of that will behind the scenes. Now this is a great mystery because you're like, okay, when I obey, I'm the one doing the obeying. Yes, you are. And overlaid, maybe underneath that, is God working in you, through you, empowering you, to obey. So for Paul, any obedience, any fruit, in this case, he's highlighting their partnership in the gospel, that partnership was not, did not come from the Philippians' good hearts. Yeah, they chose to do it of their own volition, but Paul understood that that was God working in and through them. And so for us, that means that God is working in us as we obey. That's, that's how we know and where this hits, hits rubber, rubber meets the road in our relationships is that that's true also about your friends right here in Boundless. So one thing that Paul's doing that I think we can model is Paul in this moment where the Philippian church was discouraged, their heads, heads were down, they had begun to forget the fruitfulness of the past, apparently. And so Paul, by thanking God for them publicly in this letter, is reminding them of the fruit that God had produced in them in the past, of their partnership in the gospel. And not just in the past, but all the way up to this point. Notice he said it was from the first day until now. So Paul is thanking God, and we should be folks who are kind of sniffing out the grace of God in the lives of others. We shouldn't be critical, you know, coming down hard on our friends and being sin sniffers, you know, trying to, trying to find the sin and point that out and confront everybody and show everybody how much we know and how right we are. Our goal should be to see how God is at work, affirm that in others, and when necessary, bring that correction. Uh, one man said it this way, and it was a very, very helpful. You can think of in your relationships, affirmations uh, are like a five to one versus a critique. Okay, It's like you're putting... Every time, you, every time you encourage and affirm someone in the grace of God, it's like you're putting a deposit in the bank. And five affirmations, he said, you know, equals one criticism. Just kind of a helpful, helpful paradigm. Like, okay, so I, I just affirm, you know, again, you can't you take that too far. This is, I don't know where he's drawing this from, but helpful, mental image, right? So as you think about your critiques and kind of, sharing your heart with your different friends and things. Just think, when I give a critique or when I come, come at someone, I'm making a withdrawal that's going to cost me five affirmations. Does that make sense? So affirmations are super, super important, these encouragements, and it should be the, the air we breathe 
in what we speak out. And you see this modeled here by Paul. It's the first thing he says. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Because of your partnership in the gospel. So that's who his gratitude is directed toward. It's toward God. But notice also how often he was grateful to God. What does it say? This one's not a trick question. Always. <laughs> He's always grateful. He says, in, in all my remembrance of you, so in other words, every time I think about you, and He's always grateful, it says, and it's in every prayer of His. Now Paul's heaping up these phrases, isn't he? He's trying to make a rhetorical point that he is always, consistently, frequently thanking God for the Philippian church. Now this is tremendous because Paul is saying that every time he prays, every time he hears, like in this, in this case, Epaphroditus comes to Paul, unloads on him the, the burdens of the church. Paul's thinking, okay, I've, I've heard of this church, I need to intercede for them. But thank you, God, for this church. He can't not thank God for this church. He always starts here as part of his every prayer, he says, of him for them. So even in his intercessions, even when there's problems, Paul is thanking God. Now this was brought home to me very powerfully uh, over the last few years in our elders' meetings. Uh, One of the things we do as men is we go through our church membership roster and we take, you know, probably 12 names at a time, I think, about 12 names at a time in alphabetical order, and our church prays through, our, our men pray through the names on that list. We'll give updates um, so we can pray, and then we kind of divvy those people up, and different men pray for the different, different members by name. And sometimes, you know, in those meetings, this is the elders' meetings, right? So this is where your hardest cases, counseling cases, and uh, kind of messiest situations are coming out, and we're trying to figure out how to, how to help shepherd people through these things. Um, oftentimes, uh, it's not pretty, meaning an, an elder has been, you know, slandered, or something's, something's happening, you know, on an, and it just, they're difficult situations. And yet, every time we go to prayer, every time one of these men takes a family or takes an individual, even if that situation is difficult, the men start by thanking God for those people. Now, why is that? Well, Because if they're Christians, that means God has chosen that person. That means God has paid the highest price for the soul of that person, his son. It means God has gifted that person with his spirit and gifts to be used for the body, and we need that person to be functional, and useful. So we are grateful for every Christian just by their, by their existence. This is someone that's going to live forever in God's kingdom, in a glorified state, perfect on that final day. And so Paul kept that vision in front of him. These are God's sheep. No matter how much they bite, no matter how bad they stink, And he was thankful for them. Their very existence, he was thankful to God. Why? Because God's the one that saved them. And so, one of the things that I would encourage you to do is in your prayers for each other, in your intercessions especially, begin by thanking God for that person that you're praying for. Begin by thanking God for the fruit that you see in their life. And then as you're praying, maybe after you're praying, shoot them a text. Affirm them. Let them know, I thanked God for you today. For these things. I'm seeing him at work in your life. That might just turn the day around for one of your friends. And put them on a trajectory for, for more fruitfulness to God. So Paul was grateful always in every prayer, he says, and he expressed that gratitude to God. But notice who he was grateful for, and I think this is interesting. 
He's grateful for every single member of this church. Okay? Kind of dovetails with the previous thing we just said. He says he's thankful in every prayer of his for you all. Do you see that? It's the middle of verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine, for you all. Every single one of you. I'm thankful. Now, as you, one of the interesting things, Paul often thanks God for the church in the opening of his letters. There's only a couple letters he doesn't do that because uh, he kind of jumps straight to it because the situation was so intense. Um, but he typically thanks God for people. But what's not in all of those thanksgivings is this emphasis on all. This word all. You've seen it here a couple different times. In all my remembrance of you, verse 3, always in verse 4, in every, that word every is the same word, all, every prayer of mine. And now here it is, for you all. This is the fourth time he's used this word in two verses. And he's going to continue doing this through this uh, thanksgiving. And we're going to kind of scan down through verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel in the first state of until now, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. There it is again. Because I hold you in my heart. And again, for you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all. There it is again. With the affection of Christ Jesus. That's unique. Paul doesn't do that in his other letters. So he's, he's drawing something out here, and it has to do with this whole church. The whole church. He loves them, he says in verse 8. They've, the whole church has participated in his gospel ministry, he says in verse, back in verse 7. And now here he's saying he's praying for every single one of these people. He's thanking God for all of them. So why this focus on all? Well, remember what's happening in the church? There's division between Iodia and Syntyche. Two good people, two faithful people, probably mature people. So Paul is being very intentional in this opening, showing that he is not taking sides. He's not taking sides in this, in this issue. They're all believers. They've all participated in gospel ministry. And so Paul is saying, I am, I am thanking God for every single one of you. And Paul is sort of implicitly putting himself forward as a model for this church, telling them, I think, by that repetition, God's not playing favorites either. Christ isn't playing favorites, and neither is Paul. So they need to come around and unify, deal with their differences, and thank God for each other, just like He is doing. So ask yourself this. With this kind of emphasis... Is it difficult for you to thank God for anyone else in this church? Is there anybody in here, maybe even in this room tonight, that you are at odds with? It's easier to just kind of ignore because they've hurt you in some way, they've slighted you. I think if Paul were here, he would say, hey, let's, let's get on top of that. Let's deal with that division. And one telltale way that you don't really like that person is you're not thanking God for him. <laughs> right? If in your, in your meditations of that person, you're not going to God in thanks, you're usually stewing over what happened to you and how it happened to you. So if you need help working through those things, forgiveness is not always easy. Lots of times it takes some shepherding, um, but we love to help people work through those things. Because a lot's at stake. A divided church is not going to be unified. They're not going to be standing side by side for the sake of the gospel, like he says in the end of chapter 1. So we want to deal with those things so that we too can pray, like Paul, for every single member of the church, so we can be thankful for every member and move forward together in gospel ministry. All right, so notice... Um, He's not only just grateful for every member, but notice why he's grateful. He says he's grateful for their partnership in the gospel. He says he's making his prayer with joy, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel 
from the first day until now. So thanksgiving, he kind of turned into joy. Very similar ideas here. Thanksgiving had turned into making prayers with joy. And it's because, he says, of their consistent partnership of the gospel from the first day until now. Now that raises some questions, right? It raises some questions. What, what does he mean? First one that my, my mind goes to is what does he mean when he's talking about this partnership in the gospel? What does that, what does that mean, partnership? Well, that word, you're going to see this come up again and again in Philippians, and it's this word koinonia. You may have heard that in terms of fellowship, right? It's often translated fellowship in the New Testament. Um, the core of this word, kind of the, 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 the common denominator in many of these contexts, is this idea of sharing. Sharing is, is kind of the idea of koinonia. And in this, in this context, it means like a joint venture, like a partnership. That's how it's translated, and it's a, it's a great translation. It has this idea of kind of going arm in arm with Paul in the advance of the gospel. That's the idea. They're partnering with Paul to see the gospel go forward, to see more churches planted and brought up to maturity, to see more and more worshipers of King Jesus added to his kingdom. And they're partnered with him. They're in kind of a joint relationship, a joint venture with Paul to see these things happen. So that's what it means. It's the idea, but what does it involve? I think I have a separate slide up here for this. Yeah. It's important to think about this um, because so many times when we think about partnering in the gospel, depending on our gifts, we kind of slot into one, maybe one way that we partner in the gospel to the neglect of other ways we partner in the gospel. So we're going to talk about this more in future weeks, but I want to at least spread this out for you a little bit of what I think was in Paul's mind when he's affirming their partnership in the gospel. So that we can kind of map our lives and compare our lives against those categories, what Paul, was, what Paul was envisioning here. So what does this partnership in the gospel involve? Well, I think at a minimum, in this text, it involves financial support. Financial support. If you remember back to our intro message, we looked at the background of Paul's relationship with this church in Philippi. You know, he planted it in Acts 16. And almost from day one, these people were committed to funding Paul. And they were poor. So it wasn't like a wealthy church. They may have had like one or two wealthier members like Lydia and others, but it was a very, very impoverished church. So they would, they would take up money, save some money, take it up, send it out to Paul, and they, they financially supported him at, at multiple points throughout the 10-year the period between when he, when he planted the church and now when he's writing this letter. You see this over in Philippians 4. He says in verse 14, It was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me. There's our word again. In giving and receiving, except you only. So this partnership here is in giving and receiving. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So there, we, there it is very clearly we see that this partnership involves giving and receiving, meaning financial, financial gifts. They sent it to Paul via the hands of, of Epaphroditus. So for us, you know, we're thinking that through. Part of partnering in the gospel is supporting the gospel, supporting the ministry, supporting missions, supporting church planters, supporting those kinds of things. Now, that's, this is like a whole topic in and of itself, so I'm not going to launch here. But let me assure you that when you give to the general budget of Timberlake Baptist Church, your elders are doing the vetting, we're seeking out men that we align with. We're bringing new missionaries before you. And part of that budget that you're giving to is going to what we're talking about right now, the partnership in the gospel. People like Matt Johnson in Italy who are doing very Pauline-type work where he's going in, he's planting this church, he's looking across in Italy to other neighboring towns that need more churches because it's all enshrouded in 
Roman Catholicism. We just brought on another, uh, we're bringing on another guy going to Kenya that you heard about in the missions conference. So just a number of these men who are very dialed in, very like-minded, theologically and philosophically with us, that we are supporting from our budget, that if you're giving to the general budget, that's going to support. Now, I know that you're poor college students. You're thinking, I don't have any money, right? I don't have any money to give. And that's okay, because Lord willing, you're not always going to have no money, right? Um, So I'm priming the pump for you to be big givers whenever that day comes, you know, where you you have some money. But even now, my encouragement would be to, to start thinking of small ways that you could give sacrificially to the gospel. Not because we necessarily need it at this church, but because like what Paul says, he's seeking the fruit that increases to your credit. Verse 17. Paul's saying he's not seeking the gift. He's seeking the, your, the fruit for you that's going to increase as you give and you partner financially in the gospel. Again, take your cues from the Philippians. This church was impoverished, and yet they gave, they gave anyway because they were so desirous to see the gospel go forward. So, partnering in the gospel involves, at a minimum, financial support. And everybody with a gift of giving is like, yes, it does involve that. But that's not it. It also involves intercessory prayer. It involves intercessory prayer. Now, you just see a hint of this in Philippians, but you could go to Paul's other letters and see uh, not just a hint, but a lot more clarity. In verse 19, end of verse 18 and verse 19, he says, Yes, I, and I will rejoice, for I know that, key phrase, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul's confident that in, in one way or another, he's going to be delivered. He's either going to be delivered through death, or he's going to be let, let go. Um, in in uh, Rome, and that one way or another, God is going to answer the prayers of his people. It's going to be through the prayers of the people and the help of the Spirit. So Paul, in his mind, had a very clear category for the role of the church in intercessory prayer. It was not just some sort of like perfunctory thing that they're supposed to do. You know, they're not supposed to pray, but I don't really know why. It's because God has committed himself to answering your prayers for the advancement of the gospel. It's one of the means he's ordained to make it happen. So if you just do a quick survey of Acts, and you look at all these major breakthroughs in Acts, you'll see something preceded it. Any guesses? Intercessory prayer. Praying for God's will. Praying for the the advance of the gospel. Praying for, for new churches and new nations to be planted. Praying for men to be raised up, to go to the nations because the The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. God will answer these prayers. He will. This obviously looks like knowing who your missionaries are and trying to pray for those folks and understanding kind of what their needs are, being able to intercede for them, getting on their prayer lists, their email lists as they come through. You can get information on that from our church office on the website. So what would you pray for? What kinds of things would you be praying for with, with, uh, with missionaries as you're, as you're interceding for them? <clears throat> Here's a few. All right? You'd be praying for opportunities. We see that in Paul's letters. You'd be praying for opportunities to share the gospel. Okay? Opportunities to share the gospel. Another thing you'd be praying for is when they, God grants that first request <laughs> that they would have boldness in proclaiming the gospel. A lot of these believers in places, there's a lot of cost to sharing the gospel. So pray for boldness. You can pray for clarity as they share the gospel, that they would have words to say. Paul describes this as utterance, that he would know that he would be able to make it clear as he ought to speak. So praying for clarity, that God would give them clarity of mind as they they articulate the gospel in these often hostile situations. And then pray for conversion. 
Pray that God would grant new life in the proclamation of the Word. Because our responsibility is not to convert someone, it is to be faithful in sharing the message with them. Conversion belongs to the Lord. So pray for opportunities, for boldness, for clarity, and for for conversion for these missionaries and folks that are in church planting works. And you don't just pray for them, right? we, We need to be praying for ourselves too. Because, why? Part of partnering in the gospel involves local evangelism. It's not enough merely to be praying for those you know, overseas or in that church plant, in that hostile part of Oregon, um, but to be praying for ourselves as we seek to share the gospel right here in our families, our workplaces, college dorm rooms. Even you LU students, you think, I'm going to a Christian university. But opportunities abound, don't they? at that university to share the gospel. So Paul, when Paul planted churches, this is very important for you to know, when Paul planted churches, Paul planted them strategically in, in certain places, and his expectation was that those churches would then carry out evangelism to the surrounding regions. He kind of planted these sort of gospel fountains, if you will, that would then water the rest of the land. Um, so he could say over in Romans 15 that he had he'd completed his work. He'd preached the gospel in every area. But, so he was wanting to go to Spain. He had kind of saturated uh, the, the, that area of, of, of Rome and, and the Roman Empire, and so he was ready to go to Spain. And you're thinking, no, he hasn't. Like, there's a lot, of, a lot of places that haven't heard the gospel, right? Even in that area. But what he had done is he had planted churches in strategic places. And so he was understanding that as those churches grow to maturity, that they would take the gospel to the surrounding regions. So it involves local evangelism. We see this very clearly even in the letter of Philippians itself. He says in verse 27 of chapter 1, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, so there's the unity, with one mind. Now here it is, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So the point Paul is saying is I want you to be living gospel lives. We'll talk about that in a minute. You know, unified, pursuing unity, but striving side by side for the faith of the gospel right there in Philippi. And when you meet opposition from those secularists that hate your guts, don't be afraid. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. And he goes on to say, it's been granted to you to suffer as well. God's granting that to you. So they were facing persecution. It was ratcheting up, and Paul's saying, don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of it. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says it also down a little bit further in chapter 2. In verse 16, he's talking about holding Fast to the word of life is how that's translated. It's probably better translated holding forth the word of life. So, because the context is talking about them living gospel-centered lives so that they shine like, like the stars, kind of echo from Daniel. They shine like the stars and they're holding, holding forth this word of life to this unbelieving area in Philippi, in this Roman colony. So the point here is that Paul expects this Philippian church, and he's going to motivate them in this letter, to continue to share the gospel, because that's partnering in the gospel. And they had clearly done this. You see over in chapter 4, whenever he entreats Yodi and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, he, he calls these women those who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. So these people were, these women in particular, were laboring, had once in the past, when Paul was in Philippi, probably the very beginning, were laboring side by side with him, sharing the gospel, you know, laying it all on the line, so to speak, uh, for this early church and the evangelization of the city. And one of the things I love about Boundless, one of my, 
that's really, it's really kind of taken root probably over the last two years is a zeal in evangelism. Um, I, we see this often uh, these days of people that are, are really zealous to evangelize. They're going out, they're creating opportunities for themselves in their workplaces, um, in the neighborhoods around here, and they're, they're putting it on the line to, to share the gospel. Many of you, I should say many, some of you have come to faith in Christ through the faithful witness of a friend or somebody that's, that's kind of put their life on the line right here in Boundless um, to share the gospel with you. So that is super encouraging to us as leadership. Um, I know that sharing the gospel is nervy. You know, you think, when's the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? Like, actually sat down and share the gospel. That may be a convicting question, right? Um, but that's, that's part of this partnering in the gospel, and this letter is going to equip us, help us learn to do that better. All right? And then it also involves, finally, godly living. Partnering the gospel involves godly living. We kind of alluded to this in chapter 2, but he says, Therefore, my, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. The point here is Paul's very concerned with how this church lives. Um, or we might say with its maturation, with it, with it growing up into Christ's likeness. Because as this church grows, they're putting on display the power of the gospel. They're showing everybody in Philippi that there's a, there's, a, there's a true path to transformation, a true path to change, and it's through the Lord Jesus. It's not through any of their false hopes. It's just leaving them continually enslaved to the various struggles and addictions that they were involved in. So godly living is paramount, and Paul says here that, they will, that as we grow, especially as we do everything without grumbling and disputing, then we're going to shine as lights among this crooked and twisted generation. Now, the light does two things. It, it kind of beckons everyone. It, the, the, the analogy is it, you know, it, it draws the bugs and it scatters the cockroaches. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's drawing people to Christ. The light draws people to Christ, right? But it also repels people. It makes the enemies more angry. Um, and again, Paul says that's a sign to us of, of their destruction and of our salvation. So, light doesn't mean just everybody's going to like us. Godliness convicts the world, but it also is a means that God uses to draw his people to himself, that he, he's not yet saved. So that's definitely a part of partnering in the gospel and Paul's mind, and it's something he's holding out for these believers to walk in. So I think it's important that we kind of spread that out for ourselves a little bit so that we can kind of know Okay, this is what partnering in the gospel means. It's not just one of these things. It's not just a local evangelism, as important as that is. All the evangelists in here are, yeah, like, let's do that one. But it also involves, are you putting sin to death? Are you actively putting sin to death in your life? Are you going to the mat about how to grow in Christ and serve the church right here and using your gifts? It also involves your prayer life, financial support. All those things come together in partnering in the gospel in Paul's mind. And I just want to affirm you guys, and in, in really as I was meditating on this passage, our final two points are going to go really quick, by the way. Um, <laughs> you're like, this is going to be the longest sermon ever. He doesn't have any notes. You can just talk forever. Um, where was I? Okay, we want to affirm you guys in this, because I was literally, as I was meditating on this passage, I was thinking, Paul has taken the words out of my mouth in my prayers. Do you agree with that, Rich? I mean, in a sense of, not I mean, your mouth, too, not just mine, but, like, this is, when we think of you guys, it is a joy to shepherd you. It's a joy to teach you. It's a joy to counsel you. Because of, we see these part, this partnership in the gospel. Maybe not so much financial support, but... <laughs> But these other things, we understand that, right? You're poor. 
Um, but these, these, this desire to see the gospel go forward, this desire to partner, um, man, we just see so much. And not just this partnership, it's just fruit. Fruit in your lives. I mean, the baptisms, my goodness, how sweet are those baptismal services? Where we hear so many of you have come through those waters, you've testified to your desire to, to follow Christ in the midst of this crazy world. It's going to cost you. Of how He brought you from death to life. Our new members class, like Rich said, is 30-some of you guys are in there and you're wanting to commit to a church. You want to think through, okay, I want to be part of this church that doesn't sing half, the, like, sings half songs you don't know, don't, know, don't know. We're not flashy. You know, there's nothing cool about us. Uh, you just you want to be here because you love Christ, you love His Word, and you want to see Him magnified in the community. You want to commit to us like I said, I hear about your evangelism of your coworkers, your friends. You're concerned to grow. You come to me broken. You confess sins to us. You want to make progress in the Christian life. You don't blame shift. You own these things. You have your concern for your friends. You're bringing them here. I mean, this brings us joy. We are grateful to God for you. And we don't, I'm not just saying it because this is the text I happen to be preaching in. I pray this daily. Daily for you guys. Thanking God for you by name. And don't be afraid to affirm the evidences of grace in the lives of your friends. Man, how encouraging is that? And Paul was so grateful for this church and their gospel partnership because he knew that this fruit, it signaled something else. It signaled something far more glorious than, far more encouraging. It signaled that their, their gospel partnership signaled that, that, that God had begun a work in them, among them in Philippi, and that if he had begun this work, that God himself was going to see it to completion. Or we could say it like this. His second giant affirmation is he's confident in God's work. He's confident in God's work. Think about how a statement like this would fall on the ears of a church. It's getting hammered by persecution. There's some infighting going on. And then here's incarcerated Paul saying, I'm sure of this. I'm positive. This is my conviction that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure of this. There's not a doubt in my mind. This is the deepest conviction that I have. That this gospel partnership that I've seen demonstrated in your church over the years, these last 10 years, this is a sign that God has planted you, that God's going to grow you, that God's going to bring you to full glory at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a sweet text to use in your affirmations of people. It's a sweet text to use of your own heart and life, isn't it? When you're in the battle with sin, it feels like sin has overtaken you when you're, you don't know how to get out. And this verse is encouraging us that he who began the good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So that, that upends, that one verse upends so many lies we believe, doesn't it? We get so discouraged thinking, I'm never going to overcome this sin. That's a lie. He's going to finish the work because he started it. You know, or what if, I just, what, if I, what if I fall away from the faith? Well, that's not going to happen because God planted the work. He started the work. He's going to bring it to completion. 
The work rides on God. And this is convictional for Paul. This is why Paul could sit in prison, chained to a Roman guard, and give thanks to God. Because he knew God would complete the work. It's why he knew that if he was beheaded in a couple days, that the church in Philippi would go on. Because God is going to complete the work. It's how I can lay on my back <laughs> with a fever and thank God that his work's going to go on, that I am dispensable for his purposes because he has begun the work and he's going to bring it to completion today of Jesus Christ. It's a huge, huge affirmation. We'll do the last one. Whoops. Last one real quick. Whoa. Here we go. <laughs> Trigger happy, baby. This third and final, is, is third and final affirmation is just what I'm calling um, endearment. He, he affirms his endearment, his affection for their loyal support of him even while he was in prison. Paul was endeared to these people and he wanted them to know it. He wanted them to know how deeply he felt for them. He wasn't afraid to express himself lavishly. Men. He wasn't afraid to articulate his emotions to the church and how he felt about them in gushy language. He says he is endeared to this church. He says, it's right for me to feel this way, literally to think this way. It's right for me to think this way, meaning that God's going to, I'm certain that God's going to bring you to completion. It's right for me to think this way about you all because I hold you in my heart because you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What's he saying? He's saying, it's, it's right for me to feel this way because you guys have have." participated with me, again, it's a similar language as what he just used, this koinonia language, similar word. You're, you're a participant with me of grace. Now, what does he mean? He's talking about, it's true that they've participated in like saving grace, but what he's talking about is sort of ministry grace, apostleship grace. Paul sometimes will talk about his apostleship and what this church planting ministry is a grace that's been given to him. And it's a grace that involves two things. It involves suffering and it involved proclaiming the gospel. And he's saying, you've been partners with me in both of those. And really, the emphasis in, this, in these verses falls on this idea that they have been loyal to him even in his imprisonment. When he's not productive for the gospel's sake, so to speak. When everybody else has forsaken him, when there's no one left to help him, They have remained loyal, and this endeared Paul even more to them, as evidenced by this last final gift that that Epaphroditus had given them. Paul saying, I am endeared to you. I hold you in my heart because you've helped me in these ways. And then he does something almost unthinkable in verse 8. He calls God to witness He almost gives an oath. He says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all. Again, there's that all language. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul's saying he's a conduit. His yearnings are a conduit of the yearnings of Christ for this church. That's mysterious language. You don't have time to get into it. But I think the point here is that Paul himself had experienced the love of Christ, had been radically changed by the mercy of Christ, and became a conduit of that mercy to the churches. And here he's saying he is longing, his affections for them, his endearment of them is is the same as the, the, the affection, the bowels of Christ. 
It's tremendous, tremendous encouragement, tremendous affirmation. And we'll just end with this. You're thinking, okay, that's great. He's affirming the Philippians. What about us? That any love and affection that you experience from each other, any love and affection that you experience from the pastoral leadership here, that is all like a faint flicker of the burning sun of the love of God in Christ for you. The very affection of Christ for you. So as you are landed on the line with the gospel, partnering with the gospel, as persecution's ratcheting up, as it feels like you're forsaken, envision a little man sitting in a prison cell, largely forgotten by the world, looking you in the eye and saying, as he loves you, that's just a flicker of the love and affection that Christ Jesus has for you. That, too, will upend a lot of lies um, in your life as you're fighting for faith. That Christ loves you with his deepest affection. And any time someone else loves you, it's just he sent them. (laughs) He's loving on you through them. So before Paul gets into shepherding this church and dealing with their issues, he lays out this feast of affirmation for them. Uh, And he models for us that we should do the same thing. As we're thinking about loving our friends and our neighbors, that we move in toward them with this grace-filled, big view of God, remembering His mercy, remembering His faithfulness to us, and being able to highlight the fruit that we've seen in our friends' lives, and our church family's life so that their eyes are fixed on Christ and that we continue our partnership in the gospel. All right. If you have questions, we'd always love to field those afterwards. Um, Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful that you have begun a work in us You began that work when we were not looking for it. Um, You began to pursue us with other people, with your gospel. You humbled us. You convicted us of sin. You helped us see it and own it. You brought us to faith in your Son. And you've been changing us slowly but surely ever since. And you're continuing to produce fruit right here in our midst. We just want to thank you for that. Help us if we're discouraged. Um, if anyone in here is uh, discouraged or, or, or getting off track to, to recalibrate tonight through some of these affirmations, we pray that you would make us men and women like Paul who, uh, even in the worst of circumstances, we're rejoicing, we're thankful, and we're looking to you um, for what you can accomplish. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.